We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask the hydrogen age, fact or science fiction? Hydrogen was the breakout star of the energy world in 2020. More and more companies are looking at how they can produce it in a low or zero carbon way. But how excited should we really be getting? Hydrogen was called a fuel of the future for decades. Companies have been into it before and then many have pulled out. But this time it does seem to be different. So is this the second coming for hydrogen? Is it the right solution to our energy needs? Are we entering a new hydrogen age? Luckily, I won't need to answer these difficult questions alone. I'm joined by Peter Deneff, who works in the hydrogen business unit at Engie. Engie is a French utility with almost 100 gigawatts of electricity generation worldwide and almost 30 gigawatts of that is renewable energy. It is aiming to build industrial hydrogen projects totaling three gigawatts by 2030, and Peter is playing a leading role in that. Peter, welcome. Hi. Right, so let's start off with some easy questions, Peter. Um, When did you start developing hydrogen projects? So here in the region, uh, Asia-Pacific, where I'm based, we started already back in September 2016. So those were actually commercial projects. We actually at NG did some R&D projects even before that. But here, when we talk about really commercial projects, we try to develop hydrogen-based solutions for microgrids on islands. So of course, there are many islands here in the, in the Pacific region, Asia-Pacific region. Um, and so that's where we first tried to deploy hydrogen. Then gradually, hydrogen uh, became a key topic for, for NG, and we were convinced that we should more heavily invest, invest in it. So we actually created a dedicated renewable hydrogen business unit back in 2018, which is now already three years ago. And that has steadily grown. And now we have approximately 200 hydrogen experts within the group. Gosh, that's a lot. Um, You you mentioned renewable hydrogen unit. Um, We hear a lot of discussion about different types of hydrogen production, green, blue, grey. Are you able to help demystify that for our listeners and explain what you mean by the renewable hydrogen piece as well? Yeah, sure. The, the color coding is always a, a fun game. There is actually even pink hydrogen, which is based on, uh, on nuclear power. So, But yeah, so to, to break it down, uh, if you look first at gray or, or black hydrogen, which is the hydrogen that is mostly existing today, uh, you obtain that hydrogen by reforming either natural gas uh, or, or, or gasification of, of, of coal uh, or even oil. Uh, so these, of course, emit quite a bit of CO2. 
but so far, that is the most widespread production method, if you want. So that's the first one, gray or black hydrogen. The second one is commonly referred to as blue hydrogen, which is actually the same as the previous one, but you just add some carbon capture and then potentially utilization or storage, and then you get uh, uh, the so-called blue hydrogen. It's less polluting, uh, but it still, of course, uses fossil fuel as a, as a feedstock. And then as to your question, the renewable hydrogen or commonly referred to as, as green hydrogen, there you are no longer using fossil fuels, but you will use electrolysis, which is a process where, where you basically split water uh, using obviously renewable energy and you, you obtain hydrogen that way. So it's clearly the less emitting of the production pathways as long as you use renewable uh, electricity. If you use electricity coming from a coal-fired plant, you know, you're back to square one. Well, you've certainly demystified it for me, so thank you. Um, so, so what's um, NG focusing on and what's the most important for the energy transition? Is it the green hydrogen? So we, we believe that, that between blue and, and green hydrogen, both clearly will have a role to play on the path to decarbonization. Uh, we have decided back in 2018 that given our, our stronghold in renewable energy, we would be focusing a lot on renewable hydrogen. So our commercial projects that we have been developing since then include electrolysis and, and, and the renewable source of, of energy. This being said, we do believe that blue hydrogen has a role to play as well uh, as a transition measure, maybe, uh, to eventually then fade away and to be completely taken over by renewable hydrogen. But probably today that is a bit too, too early to tell. Uh, but, but we do believe that, that renewable hydrogen uh, has a distinct role to play for reasons such as uh, sector coupling, um, where you can use the excess uh, solar or wind uh, electricity, transform it into hydrogen and store it. So in a way, it works a, a, as a giant battery uh, for intraday or even interseasonal storage. Yeah. So, so in short, hydrogen, you can compare it almost to a, you know, one of these Swiss pocket army knives, uh, where depending on the situation, you can use it for different use cases. So, so it can be a, a really truly decarbonized raw material or, or clean energy on the one hand. But as I, as I mentioned, it can also be a way of storing renewable energies uh, over the short or long term. That is something, for example, that you see very active here in Australia. Places like South Australia have often need to curtail their, their renewable energy simply because they cannot store it and, and batteries will not fulfill that role. So the concept of firming up renewables with hydrogen is something that, that, uh, that's very much alive. Then thirdly, you of course have the, the, the substitution role that hydrogen can play for natural gas or methane in our gas networks. So for in Europe, of course, we have a very extensive, uh, extensive gas network system uh, Australia as well. So if you look in the future and you see a fully decarbonized future, well, instead of natural gas, you will need to have something else in those ga gas networks. And that's, that's the role that hydrogen can play uh, and where we have been uh, performing demonstration R&D projects already for a very long time in Europe. Uh, but also Australia is, is working very hard on that. And then finally, uh, it, it, it acts as a, as a way to reduce CO2 emissions in some of the very uh, hard to abate, uh, uh, very hard to abate technology uh, industries such as steel or cement, um, and eventually uh, it, it can even lead to, to job creation and employment opportunities uh, in, uh, in in places where it's deployed. 
what a great metaphor uh, for hydrogen, Swiss Army knife. I'll certainly remember that. Um, you mentioned in that description some of your R&D projects and also what you were doing in Australia. Um, are you able to tell our listeners a little bit more about the projects you're working on currently? Sure. Um, so the R&D projects are mostly run uh, out, of, out of France, the NG R&D projects, and collaboration with, with some of the other players in France and in Europe. Uh, we have, for example, uh, GRIT or Jupiter 1000, which both look at injecting uh, hydrogen um, into, the, uh, into the gas pipeline network and all the questions that come with that in terms of risk of embrittlement uh, for the gas pipelines, what is the risk of higher hydrogen percentages into the appliances? So a whole body of work that goes into that uh, to, to really reuse the, 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 the gas networks. So that's our demonstration projects that we already been doing for some time. At the, the business unit uh, that I'm, I'm working at, um, we, we actually look at commercial projects. And there we have around, let's say, 30 projects in 10 different countries that we are, that we are currently looking at. Some, of course, more advanced uh, than others, but we do have the objective to install and operate around three gigawatts of hydrogen capacity by 2030, which is a very ambitious uh, uh, target if, if, you, if, you, if you take into account that the, the, the current hydrogen projects more hover around the 10 megawatts. So, so we clearly have uh, quite a bit of work to do, uh, but... What is really important for us is that because it needs to be commercial projects, we are really looking at industrial scale uh, with double-digit generation capacity, so 10 megawatts, 50 megawatts, uh, and beyond. We look at uh, a couple of very uh, carefully selected regions around the world uh, because, of course, with renewable electricity being the key feedstock to, to, to green hydrogen, eh? so the green hydrogen we talked about before, you need to be looking at lo uh, uh, geographies where the potential to produce renewable energy is, is, uh, is very good. So you can get low-cost electricity and thus lower-cost uh, hydrogen. So with that in mind, we're looking at Europe, here in Asia-Pacific, a lot at Australia, but then also Latin American, uh, such as Chile and, and Brazil. So that's in terms of geographies. In terms of segments, and, and for those active in the industry, that will probably not come uh, as a surprise, but we target certain segments such as uh, ammonia, so which is the feedstock to industry, uh, where already today ammonia producers are using hydrogen, but the dirty gray hydrogen. And so we help them switch over to green hydrogen so that they can produce green ammonia. And ammonia... Of course, as a fertilizer, it is really feeding the world. So with the, um, the growing uh, 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 population around the world, you will need more ammonia. So you will also need to find ways to uh, decarbonize uh, the ammonia production. Some other really interesting segments is, for example, the mining industry. Uh, so if you want to decarbonize the world, you need more batteries, you need more electric cars. So all of that requires more mining. So if you cannot decarbonize the mining industry, then you, you're not really uh, uh, advancing a lot in terms of decarbonization. So the mining sector is really important for us. Uh, we have a very uh, high-profile collaboration with Anglo-American and South Africa, where we're actually looking um, to make one of these really gigantic mining trucks, make them run on hydrogen rather than diesel. 
Um, and it's a very interesting niche market where we believe that the total cost of ownership of such a mining truck uh, running on hydrogen could already be equivalent to diesel within the next uh, two or three years. And then there are various other applications within the mining ecosystem that are, that are interesting. Uh, the other probably very interesting segment to mention is heavy mobility. Um, so you hear a lot about the passenger cars, the hydrogen fuel passenger cars, which is which is which could potentially be interesting. But basically, the larger you go in terms of mobility, the better you are in terms of, of offtake and, and, and cost reduction potential. So we're looking at trains. We have deployed a hydrogen train together with Alstom uh, in the Netherlands. But also, how can you decarbonize the shipping industry? And there again, hydrogen or in the form of ammonia can, can play a role. And then some other sectors, again, heavy industrial refining, steel, uh, chemicals, all of those are clearly in, um, within our scope. And so all of these projects, they, 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 uh, they, they will typically involve some uh, additional development options that will bring the, uh, the hydrogen production capacity at those locations from a megawatt level to a gigawatt level. So really high, gosh, really high targets, three gigawatts by 2030. Um, so size um, and scaling up is really important. Um, but clearly, as you've just explained, lots of opportunities also across geographies and quite a variety of the industrial segments you've um, you've mentioned. So a lot to go at. But how do you how do you decide and how do you get about originating and developing these new hydrogen projects? Yes, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, we asked ourselves that same question when we started the, the hydrogen business unit several years ago. And um, so, there, I mean, I have to admit there was a bit of a learning, uh, failing and learning fast uh, in the beginning because it, it, is a new, uh, it, it is a new industry. But we persisted. We believed that, that, that there would be a first mover advantage, with, which today is, is becoming a reality. And so we, we, we learned some, some, some key lessons in terms of development of these type of, uh, of, this, this type of projects. Um, and so one key topic that will uh, come back quite a bit is the concept of, of territorial platforms or hubs at an industrial scale. So rather than having small little uh, projects, we try to see how we can bring uh, those different offtakes uh, together. And so there's four main phases, if you want, in our approach. And so the first one goes back to what we mentioned. We need to find the best location. Before we talked about which countries are the best, Australia, Chile, uh, all, of these, all of these countries. But then within the countries, there is, of course, still quite a bit of, uh, of difference. And there we will try to identify the most favorable sites to produce green hydrogen at a, at a, low, uh, at a low cost. And so um, what makes a site attractive? It can, of course, be the potential to produce renewable energy. Uh, so good solar and wind possibly co-located, that, that's the best, but then also existing infrastructure that you can reuse uh, um, at, at those locations. So that's the first step. Find the best sites within the best countries. Secondly, you know, NG is a big company, but it, it's, as you were saying, it's a very ambitious and, and, um, uh, and difficult target to reach, so we can't do it on our own. And it's really key that we can forge partnerships with the local players. Um, nearly all of our projects, or I can think, I, th I think I can say all of our projects are with co-developers, co uh, partners to, to, to develop these really large-scale hydrogen production ca capacities. 
Um, and those partners can be found in our target segments that we listed before, ammonia production, chemical sectors, and so on, the mining industry. And so really by bringing all of these players together, we can create a significant demand for higher and larger hydrogen volumes. Because, and that's, that's another key topic, it's all about scale. The quicker you can go to scale, the faster you will be able to get to the holy grail of hydrogen, which is cost reduction. So today, electrolyzer equipment is still a niche market. So when you place an order, there is a guy somewhere in the factory starting to, to, build, to build that one single electrolyzer. So you need to go from that current situation to a fully automated uh, production uh, method like the gigawatt factories of solar and so on. But if you want to get there, if you want to start that virtuous circle of, of, of cost reduction, you need to go to scale. So that's why we bring partners together, try to create the largest possible demand at those sites uh, and start developing the project there. Uh, so the third step is, is more or less what, what, what I just described. So where we bring these multiple users of hydrogen together and we typically will choose a location that has the potential to expand, but some key existing anchor offtakes today. So one example is our project in the Pilbara in Western Australia, where there's a lot of potential for all different type of segments in that same geographical area. But we have one very, very key, well-identified partner, which is Yara, the Norwegian ammonia producer. So we partner with that anchor offtaker to develop the project. And that will be the basis, which is in the fourth step, to expand our hub or our uh, territorial uh, platform, as we call it, around that anchor offtake so that we can develop the Western Australian Pilbara hub around that one, one, one single offtake. So if I can summarize so in the four steps, so you, you find the best sites, you find the best partners, you try to aggregate in the first step already as much as hydrogen offtake you can, you, can, you, can, uh, you can possibly find. And then the fourth step, you will eventually expand the, um, the, 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 the hydrogen production capacities with future offtakes. That's really interesting and clearly um, a, a lot of points covered there. And in particular, I'd like to come back in the podcast to scalability. But now I just wanted to take the conversation in a, a slightly different direction um, and, and really um, get your view on why we think there's been such a step change in interest in hydrogen last year and this year. I think there's probably uh, uh, several uh, circumstances or recent developments that, uh, that have led to that. I think the first one is the is the falling cost of, of renewables, uh, specifically for, of course, for green hydrogen, where, again, 50% of the cost of green hydrogen comes from uh, electricity, renewable electricity, if, if, you, if you're aiming for renewable hydrogen, which means that the more that the cost of renewables go down, and we all know that they do, the more that the cost of renewable or green hydrogen will go down as well, automatically, just as a matter of fact. So even without doing anything, you already lo are looking at, at, at reducing cost of, 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 renewable, uh, of renewable hydrogen. But then there is the, the, the current uh, push in, in, in different uh, uh, countries of the, of, of, of the governments to really make the hydrogen economy take off. And so because it is early days and because it's still non-competitive, you really need the local governments to step in, uh, both by providing guidance. And a good example is, again, Australia, who issued back in, in Q4 of 2019 
their national hydrogen strategy with a very clear roadmap, very clear focus on certain segments or, and hubs uh, and so on, which provided the industry a clear guidance on, on, on where to go. But that's, of course, not enough. You, don't, you not only need to, 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 to show the industry where the government wants to go, you also need to put actual support on the table. And there again, Australia has been very consistent uh, in their support uh, for hydrogen. There is a 17 million hydrogen funding round that is currently closing in Australia to which NG is participating with two projects. So that's that, that 70 million, in addition to already several other millions that they had um, uh, attributed to hydrogen projects. And there is much more coming uh, because there will need to be more, more subsidies. Of course, in Europe, the same is happening with the uh, recent uh, uh, post-COVID announcements where uh, clearly the European governments see that there is a future in hydrogen and want to make that uh, a key part of the economic uh, um, uh, revival. And then, of course, last but not least, uh, the industry is also getting serious about it. So we started on hydrogen back in 2018, and we still had to go around uh, convincing other companies to join this adventure, if I can call it like that, um, and there was a lot of questions on, on yeah, but is this real? Why now? And, and should we or should we wait? And, um, and so we came from there in a few years to everybody wanting to do it. I think it's almost every day or every two days that you hear a press release of this other oil company or gas company investing into hydrogen, which is really good news because it shows that we were uh, on the right track. And of course, the more players join the game, um, the, the more the more realistic it is to um, to reach our objective. So a combination of a number of factors coming together, then falling renewable costs, um, increasing interest from the industry, and what strikes me as really important is this um, requirement for public sector support. Um, c- can this be traced back at all to the Paris Agreement? Do you think? Oh yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, so 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 clearly. Uh, one of the major challenges of, of the Paris Agreement is, is the decarbonization of industries. I think we, we talked about it before, especially those industries uh, that are very hard uh, to decarbonize. Uh, and there, hydrogen has a really key role to play. So if you compare, for example, with the passenger cars, you can go from, from, from your internal combustion engine to batteries quite easily. So those industries are actually not so hard to decarbonize. But some of the others, like the chemical industry, the steel industry, cement, heavy-duty mobility, you, you don't really have a lot of other solutions uh, than hydrogen. And, and that's a, a realization that, that, of course, really has helped to push the hydrogen economy further. If you, wanna, if you want to decarbonize and you believe that you need to get there, then you know that you will need a technology um, such, as, um, uh, such as hydrogen. So, so for mobility, it's really that clean f- fuel that can be used in fuel cell vehicles, uh, in heating systems, in hydrogen-ready gas turbines, uh, for power generation, and, and even for, for, for synthetic fuels. Uh, for example, for trucks, the U.S. Army is working on, on um, the equivalent of the Hummer, but then uh, running on hydrogen. Um, and they can even use the water because the, the, the only exhaust from, from a hydrogen truck is water. The soldiers can use that water to drink during their missions. Um, so it's really all, all sectors that are looking at, uh, uh, at, these, um, at these applications for, for hydrogen. 
I think the other one that we mentioned is sector coupling. And so the concept that you can, that you can store uh, the, the, the sun or the wind uh, in, in, in the form of hydrogen. Um, because of the Paris Agreement, there will be more and more renewables, which means you will more and more need storage for those renewables. And, and again, hydrogen with underground storage, uh, as we're already doing with natural gas, is really a cost-effective way of storing um, uh, uh, renewable energy. So it's really thanks to the Paris Agreement that, that people see the importance of, of, of hydrogen and it's really a, a natural part of the solution for, for zero emissions. That's really interesting. Um, I, I think you do hear a lot about um, many initiatives and um, growth coming from the Paris Agreement. But in relation to hydrogen in particular, um, there's been a lot of talk about the EU's hydrogen strategy that was announced in July 2020. Um, What's your view on it? How important was that? Very important. Uh, it was, um, if, if you look back at, at, at the history so far in terms of support, clearly that one of the first countries to move and to have a very clear path forward on hydrogen was Japan. Uh, they have their own particular uh, concerns regarding energy security and, and, and how to, to, to have sufficient um, energy supply to their country in, in a decarbonized future, especially with, with the nuclear uh, um, uh, problem. So Japan was one of the first ones. Australia saw the potential for export and then joined a little bit later. Uh, but Europe so far was, was, was less active. Now, with the recent announcements that really put uh, the EU in the, um, in the spotlight in terms of hydrogen, really becoming playing that role again of a, of a trendsetter, um, and so there is the hydrogen strategy for, for climate neutral Europe, the EU strategy for energy system integration. So that goes back to the, to the sector coupling and the clean hydrogen alliance that really um, sets the framework to the su support the development of the hydrogen economy within, um, within, within Europe. Um, so it's, it's, it's not only Europe, it's not only Japan, Australia and Europe, uh, also Canada, uh, Latin America, and then certain states within California were already pushing ahead with, with hydrogen even uh, under the former um, uh, presidency. And that is not even not talking about China because, uh, as we all know, once China puts its weight behind a certain technology, that's when you really see the cost plummeting down. Um, and China is very serious on, on hydrogen as well. There's a lot of manufacturing going on of hydrogen buses um, and electrolyzers and so on. We one point we were looking at sourcing even buses, uh, hydrogen fuel cell buses from from China, and the manufacturers couldn't even didn't even have time to respond to our request because they were so busy servicing the the, the Chinese domestic market. It definitely sounds to me as if it's becoming a truly global market. Um, I hadn't realized how global it was um, until you just went through those um, countries there. So I'm sure our listeners will be interested to hear that. Okay, so. Um, I'd like to go back and maybe unpack some of um, the issues we discussed earlier in a little bit more detail. Um, we have looked at the drivers for hydrogen um, and we've looked at what's needed for them to be successful, you know, scalability, public sector support. Um, are there any other obstacles to scalability and what do we need um, for it to become truly commercialised? Yeah, that's, that's uh, again, a very uh, fundamental and good question. So I think um, th there is, there is uh, different, different fronts on which we need to work uh, together. So, so one is, is the technological uh, uh, challenge where 
as, as we were mentioning before, so currently some of the technology, and especially the electrolyzer, are still a niche market. So we need to find ways to make the producers, um, the manufacturers of, that, of those equipment to industrialize their processes. Now, of course, they will only do that uh, once there are actual orders coming in. So they will not build a dedicated factory as long as they don't have a clear pipeline of orders and projects uh, coming in. So it's... Um, uh, we are working closely with some of these technology suppliers um, and, and it's a really win-win situation where we give a view on our pipeline of development projects to those suppliers um, and they also give some insight on how quickly they can scale up their manufacturing uh, capabilities. So it's all, all of that is to make sure that we are in sync. So by the time that we place an order with the electrolyzer manufacturers, that they can actually deliver uh, the, the, the equipment by the time um, that uh, we, uh, we need it. Um, but those are actually not even technological challenges because those technologies already exist. So it's not a question of inventing them. It's just a question of making them cheaper. Now, of course, there are certain technological developments that need to be further uh, assessed. Um, one example uh, goes back to the blending into the gas networks. So if you currently blend hydrogen into the, into the gas network, you will actually have a risk of um, embrittlement. Um, there's also some risks with the, uh, with the valves and, and the appliances. But if you only look at embrittlement, one way to resolve it is to actually have an, some kind of coating applied to the inner sides of, of, of the gas pipeline network. And so we are doing some, some work with a startup that has created a device that will actually go through the pipeline and apply that, that coating inside uh, the gas pipeline. So clearly, that is a new technology, but that will allow to reuse the whole gas network uh, to run, uh, to run on, on, on hydrogen. So there is, there is actually, uh, the, the basic technological bricks are there. Uh, so it's more question of scaling up and getting cost down. And then there is, of course, always a bit of um, additional research that will, that, will, that will help as well. So the obvious question, I think, following from that from our listeners, that, and I'm certainly wondering, is how close are we um, for hydrogen to be truly commercially viable? Is it next year? Is it five years? What sort of horizon are we looking at? Yeah, so, so indeed, they're closing this competitiveness gap between renewable hydrogen uh, or even blue hydrogen and, and, and let's say green hydrogen is really uh, the key issue. Um, one of the ways that we, that we are, of course, addressing that um, today um, is, is by uh, finding some, some niche applications. I mentioned the, the mining trucks. Uh, there are also certain customers that already today uh, are, are, are facing pressure to find ways to decarbonize and, and based on that pressure are willing to pay a certain premium. And then, of course, there is the government stepping in with all types of grants and subsidies. But you're absolutely right. That is not a, a, a long-term uh, plan, of course. We need to, we need to have a visibility on, on when renewable and blue hydrogen can compete with gray hydrogen on, on, its own, on, on its own feet, right? And there, okay, we already mentioned that we need to develop the industrial-scale production capacities, which will lead to low cost. So looking at what the international experts are saying, such as those of the Hydrogen Council and the International Energy Agency, there is clearly a consensus that this gap in competitiveness between renewable hydrogen and its fossil fuel equivalent of, of gray or black hydrogen will be eliminated as early as 2030. So that is not that, that far away. 
And that will be uh, mostly thanks to two factors that we have already looked at before. So it's the cost of renewable electricity, wind and solar, that will continue to go down, which is 50% of the cost of, of hydrogen. And then the other 50%, so the, the equipment or the CapEx part, uh, which is the electrolyzer equipment, will also uh, go down if and only if you get to scale. So that is, that, that is not too far away, again, 2030, um, but it requires people to, to really uh, focus and invest heavily, both private sector and government, into these, uh, into these projects. So 2030 doesn't feel like um, too far to go, so that, that sounds good. Um, maybe we could delve a little bit deeper into something you mentioned earlier, actually, and that's the um, segments of industries that are driving, um, you know, the new role of hydrogen that we're seeing. Um, I think you mentioned mining and heavy mobility. If you could just expand a little bit more um, on the types of industries um, that you see NG partnering with in order to fulfill your goal. One first example maybe is in, in, in South America. Uh, there we're working with a company called NIX, uh, where we're, we are producing and supplying to NIX green hydrogen. And that, that hydrogen will then be used to produce uh, uh, ammonia. And we are co-locating our, our, our um, uh, photovoltaic plant next to an, the, our electrolyzer, which then feeds into the uh, ammonia process of, 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 of NIX. Uh, the, the Chilean government is, is, is very supportive of hydrogen developments, uh, and that's, as I mentioned, one of the key drivers to select a certain location. I think we mentioned the, uh, the project before uh, with Yara uh, in Australia, so in Western Australia, in the Pilbara. Uh, that is a project we've been working on for, for several years now. It's, it's probably one of the most or the most advanced hydrogen project in the whole of Australia, including from all of the other developers. Um, and it could really be the brick, uh, the first brick of, of a large hydrogen hub in Pilbara, uh, targeting as well the um, mining operations because the whole area is full of uh, full of mine sites. Which brings us to the mining sector. Uh, we talked about it before. Uh, we have the project with Anglo American in in, in South Africa. Uh, that is a project that is in the public domain already, but we do have different uh, leads um, with uh, other mining companies, including in Australia, uh, where we, we will uh, use, again, that concept of, of uh, uh, hydrogen for heavy-duty vehicles, which is really large kind of monster trucks, but also for heating processes, uh, as well as for, for, for energy storage. And with some of these initiatives, we actually, you know, quite advanced, um, and hopefully we can make an announcement uh, in that regard uh, shortly. And then finally, um, the, the, the more of a concept of a hydrogen hub, we are working with Gazuni uh, in the Netherlands, and there we really have a, a, a view to, um, to develop a 100 megawatt electrolyzer by 2024, which goes back to that concept of bringing together different offtakes and aggregating them uh, all together. So these are clearly the, the segments and type of players uh, that we're focusing on. And, and it's each time key to find those players that are also forward-looking because this is a, a, an emerging technology and you do need players that have a very clear decarbonization strategy and not only a strategy, but that have the commitment to allocate resources to it, especially in those early days when the payoff is not immediately there. But we, 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 are, we are very lucky to, to find some of these partners 
who share that vision that yes, there is an early mover advantage. We need to make it happen. And we are buying our in- entry ticket into that, uh, into that future uh, hydrogen business, which one day will be fully profitable in its own right. Interesting. I look forward to hearing about your announcement um, on the mining project in Australia soon. So um, looking ahead to the role green hydrogen is going to play in our energy transition, what sort of market share do you think green hydrogen will have in the future, say 2030, and then maybe even looking very far ahead at 2050? Building on what we mentioned at the beginning of this, this conversation, so a majority of hydrogen today, around 96%, is still produced from fossil fuels, so gas and coal, while green or renewable hydrogen is only 4% of that global market of hydrogen. It's really a tiny part. But we do believe that there is a huge growth perspective for renewable hydrogen. So according to some studies from the industry association, the, the Hydrogen Council, the market size could multiply by 10 by 2050. And that is mainly to address some of the segments uh, that we that we that we talked about before, which are very hard to decarbonize. So heavy duty transport, which would be twenty seven percent by two thousand fifty, feedstock for the industry, again twenty four percent by two thousand fifty, energy for the industry twenty percent by two thousand fifty, but also heat and power for buildings, power generation, and so on. So today uh, a tiny part of the market, tomorrow uh, a very large part. And the final question, uh, which is a question I've asked um, all our guests on the Climate Transition podcast, are you hopeful for the future? Absolutely. uh, We we are very confident that the time for hydrogen is today, now. So if you look at last year, 2020, we kind of call it the the, the year of the big announcements. So there were a lot of announcements in Australia, in Europe, uh, in Japan. So 2020 was really that, that moment where there was a realization that hydrogen was serious. People got very excited. Many players joined uh, the, the, the game. Um, now, we need to be a little bit realistic is that it won't happen overnight. Uh, sometimes the comparison is made with the LNG business, which took 30 years to put in place. So that's 3-0. That's a long time. Now, we do not believe that it will take as long for hydrogen, but it is a very long road that we have ahead of us. Um, and so the comparison often made with, the, with the, the valley of debt. So we are clearly, we have at high speed entered that valley of debt, but we need to realize it's a long way and everybody needs to, needs to persist and, and really work hard on, on making it happen, both industry um, and government. But we, we, we clearly see the end at the light of the tunnel. So Bloomberg New Energy Finance has, has called 2021, so this year, as, as the year of hydrogen. This is where, after the announcements of, of last year, the actual results, the first, the first bricks need to be laid down, uh, very concrete results. So everybody's eagerly waiting for that. And, and it needs to happen because if you don't have the first projects, again, you don't have that cost reduction potential and so on. Um, but but clearly the, the 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 time is now. Technology is evolving every single day, uh, which which makes it both exciting uh, and challenging. You, you need to, you need to always make sure you, you use the best technologies. And I think the the, the best the best example uh, that um, that can be given are, are some of the concrete projects that that NG is developing uh, in in hydrogen everywhere in the world in, in different locations. Um, and um, and with different partners. And I think that that's really the best proof of our confidence in the future, all these serious 
credible industrial players that are saying, yep, hydrogen is serious. We need to put in resources uh, and make it happen. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. I've enjoyed our discussion. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so, is a hydrogen age fact or science fiction? Well, having listened to Peter today, I would say it's a fact, but there's clearly a long way to go. But with companies like NG on the case, it feels like we'll definitely get there. And one thing I'm sure of, it won't be the last time we discuss hydrogen on this series of the Climate Transition Podcast. I hope you can join us for our next episode of the Climate Transition Podcast, when we'll be asking, are corporates in the green driving seat? I'm Natasha Luther-Jones, and on behalf of DLA Piper, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. (laughs) 